Well, hello everybody and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, I would love it if you opened up your Bible to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're going to be starting in the 31st verse. Now, as we get into this, keep in mind, St. Paul is bringing up a lot of stuff seemingly at random. We went from chapter 7 going over the well, the nature of sin inside of us and the problems that we have with our flesh and all sorts of issues that kind of felt like a downer. It really did. But in chapter 8, he starts to talk about how, well, now we live by the Spirit, understanding that the sins that we commit, that we struggle against, that's not really 100% us. Sin dwells in us, in our old Adam, to rise up and try to get us to submit to it, to rule over us. So then, we talk about how, well, we're debtors, though, because we praise our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. We belong to him now. And then he gives us some real talk. Starting in verse 18, he starts talking about how everything, and I mean everything, blowing your mind here, pow, everything in creation yearns, longs for perfection. Everything yearns for the moment when we are fully redeemed. We have a new heavens and new earth. There's no more curse. And, well, with that, he encourages us. And we spent probably too much time talking about that last verse there in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I made a point to talk about how we were called and predestined to sanctification. We were getting really, really, really specific about what exactly St. Paul is talking about here and what that means for us. But, ultimately... Something I neglected to mention is that this works as a bit of a chiasm. Let's go ahead and read from verse 28 to verse 31, and then we're going to read from verse 31 to the end of the chapter here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> so a chiasm in that Hebrew poetry is, a, B, B, A, or A, B, C, B, A. The idea being that by structuring your sentences this way, where you repeat or build on something that you've said previously in a very parallel fashion, you can get the sense of a text a little bit better. We can see what the emphasis is on the passage. So if we start here, A, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, we know everything works for good. A. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. B. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. B. 2. So, B1 here in this little chiasm, 28 through 31, is telling us, yes, everything is going to work out for our good because, you know, hey, for everybody who is called, this is what happens. God foreknew you to be conformed to the image of his son, to be sanctified so that you can be among brothers with Christ, the, the big brother, so to speak. And... He builds on that set, that statement there, B1. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's not just predestination to sanctification. This is a whole thing here. That God wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you to be justified, counted righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and if you are justified by that, then you have a position of glory and dignity already. Yes, there is that already, but not yet, because Christ is going to return. And then we get to A2 here in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And this is the shortest statement here. A1 in verse 28, this statement, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. A2 is the conclusion that St. Paul wants to draw. It sounds like a hypothetical question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you almost want to say nobody, like it's a, uh, <laughs> like it's some sort of, uh, rallying speech, right? Like St. Paul is telling us, what do we want? Salvation. Do we already have it? Yes. Is anybody going to be against us? No. Mm, not quite. Not quite, guys. Let's go ahead and read now from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now he's going to explain that a little bit more. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's bring this together. It's almost like St. Paul is entering into another chiasm here. 
He's trying to explain that last little conclusion here that he brought in from verses 28 to 31. He's explaining it in a way that really answers that question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's go ahead and read the last two verses of the chapter as a chiastic answer to that question. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So is St. Paul saying, no one can lay a charge against you. You are invulnerable. Anything that they bring against you is a phantasm. It is fake. It is but an illusion. You will have no opposition from anybody who is against Jesus Christ. No, that's not what St. Paul is saying. When he asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? He lists who is against you in verses 38 and 39. Death, life, angels, rulers, things present things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. The point is that these things will come against you, but they cannot separate you from the love of Christ. How does all this work? Well, he says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Our Heavenly Father gave Jesus up to the chief priests, to Judas, to the hand of Pontius Pilate who had him nailed to a cross for us. He who did not spare his own son, he let that happen, handed him over, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God allowed our Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to suffer all of this. And he went willingly to that cross, of course, but the Father allowed this to happen for you, for me. The, the crux of all Christian theology, the essence of all Lutheran theology, the very point of the gospel is that it is all for you, that God is for you. Now, we shouldn't get a big head about this. It's pretty basic. Look, the Bible isn't worth anything. The Christian faith is completely pointless if it is not for you. Now, somebody might have some sort of big head and a noble idea that, well, you have to stand up for the truth no matter what. And my response to that is that if it does not give you eternal life, then religious truth is pointless. It really is. If we end up being reincarnated or something like that, if Buddhism was true or Hinduism was true, there's zero point to believing in it. Same thing for people who believe nothing happens after we die. You just experience complete and total oblivion. Well, not even experiencing it, just experiencing nothing. Having no qualia whatsoever. So let's look at that. If I am reincarnated forever, provided I don't escape the cycle of uh, reincarnation or whatever, um, okay, whatever. Makes no difference to me. 
I have, I have literally zero point to believe in a system that's going to impact my life when what's promised to me is a great eternity of feeling nothing as one of these enlightened people in nirvana that have no passions, no desires, no pleasure, and they're just kind of floating there for all eternity. That's completely worthless to me. That's garbage. And if nothing happens after I die, well, what's the point in believing that? The atheist just believes that something's going to happen automatically that the Buddhist thinks is going to happen with lots and lots of hard work, ending the cycle, so to speak. That, that's pointless. That's worthless. Oh, if ghosts exist and the ghost adventure guys are somehow correct, that we're, we're all beings with an electric soul or whatever that floats around trying to gain satisfaction for the life that they had, whatever. That's not eternal life. That's just floating for all eternity. And if that's going to happen, whether or not I believe in it, there is no point to it whatsoever. None of these systems really make you a promise. And none of them are for you. St. Paul here is saying God is for you. And it's true. It really is true, by the way. So absolutely, the truth factor is there. But any system which claims to have the truth and you should seek the truth and it's all about the truth, well, listen, call me selfish, call me a jerk. If it's not for me, I don't really care. I am one organism in a mass of billions and trillions of organisms on the planet. And if I follow a different program from the truth, when something is going to happen to me automatically, if I don't hold to that truth, or even if I do hold to that truth, then it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make a difference. With Christianity, however, with what St. Paul is saying, that God cared about you so much that he died for you. Jesus Christ went to a cross for you. He specifically, in a world where just about nobody actually cares about you, that our Lord Jesus, he comes and he cares about you so much he's willing to die bleeding on a cross with the flesh of his back hanging off in ribbons because of that cat of nine tails with pushpin thorns put into his head that he went through all of that plus all of the wrath of God descending upon him as the father turns his face away that he did all of this for you so that you could live forever with God's family. Jesus Christ being the firstborn among many brethren Oh, that's something good. I want that. St. Paul is highlighting this as a promise. And he also says, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh yes, this life might be bad. Oh yes, people can be against us. But that's not really the point. At the end of the day, if our Lord does all this for us, in the atonement, in the resurrection. And then he promises you all things. A residence and membership in a kingdom that never perishes. You never have to go through hunger. You are always in a state of plenty and enjoy. So much good happening in that. Well, my goodness, that's perfect. Sign me up. I will, I will tell you right now, if everybody had 100% pure knowledge that this is true, then it does not matter who is against you. It does not matter who is coming at you or how bad life can get. You see that prize at the end of the race and you are going to run for it.
you will tolerate absolutely anything knowing that this is what is coming for you at the end. Absolute perfection, the redemption of creation. No more curse to make it even sweeter. In verse 33, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So, yes, people bring charges against us all the time as God's elect. Absolutely. People hate Christians because they hate Christ. But God declares us righteous. So even in the midst of this, while I am going through this, while I am seeing what God has done for me, he says, hey, back off, world, flesh, and devil. This is my kid now by adoption. You do not mess with him. Who is to condemn in verse 34? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if anybody in the world condemns you for being a Christian, if anybody in the world or if the devil himself were to come up and tell you how awful, how evil you are, how much of a sinner you are, what is in your past, and look at, oh my goodness, you know what, it's even beyond just sin. You're just ugly. You're just pathetic. You're weak. You're nothing. Really? Well, who's on the throne advocating for me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for me. If he died for me, and I believe in him, and I'm declared righteous, none of those charges and accusations brought against me by the devil of the world, or even my old Adam trying to kill me with my own guilt, to stop me from seeking Christ. And all I have to do is respond to them. You know, you're probably right, but I don't care because Jesus Christ has died for me. My sins are forgiven. I will remain with him. That's it. I, I absolutely repent of my sins. I want to be a good part of my sanctification. I want to seek God. Yes, I'm not going to do that perfectly. But at the end of the day, I worship a merciful God who did not spare his own son so that I could live. And this is what I will believe. Your guilt out there, everything you feel, it has a point. We really are poor, miserable, stinking, rotten sinners who deserve damnation. And yet God in his mercy has saved us. So we continue on reading then. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, wait a second. Now he's getting to his real point here, and he's going to repeat himself. Again, there can be these layers of chiasm in it, and I, I don't want people to go into some sort of chiastic mania trying to figure out where all the ABBA statements are. But just keep in mind, when he said, who can be against us in verse 31, he's saying in verse 35, well, wait, you're still going to experience this bad stuff. The church is still going to go through tribulation and distress. Oh yes, we're going to go through hard times. Persecution, we're going to have people who hate us and can do something about us. Famine, people are going to go hungry, they're going to skip meals. Nakedness, you will be cold. Danger or sword, all sorts of things. He's just like spitting this out saying, yes, all this stuff can happen and it can be against you and you see that, but it will not separate you from the love of Christ who died for you. You can always hold on to the fact that God loves you. 
And it says in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a reference to Psalm 44. Let's look here at Psalm 44 just real quick. I won't do the same in-depth commentary here, but in verse 18 it says, Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. St. Paul says that that psalm applies to you. It applies to the church. Now, by taking that verse from Psalm 44 and applying it directly to the church, St. Paul is foreshadowing supersession, the doctrine of supersession that we will start to get into next week. But for now, bear in mind, what is he saying? Yes, we have enemies. We go through persecutions. We have all these painful things and we cry out to God for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake and help us. We are in the shoes of ancient Israel now. We are Israel. But nobody can truly condemn you. Nobody can bring a sentence of damnation on you because the case, the legal case, so to speak, St. Paul is bringing up charges and condemnations, this kind of legalese in ancient Greek that says nobody can go out there as a lawyer and tell you you are guilty. Oh, they can, they can try, but God will always respond with, no, 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 I'm the judge, case is closed, this one is innocent on account of my son. And we hold on to that and approach God asking for his justice asking him to move, asking him to deliver us. He wants us to go to him in these situations because we must never, ever, 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 ever forget that he loves us and is for us. In spite of what we see in the world, in spite of the persecution, famine, sword, everything St. Paul brought up, in spite of that, we go to God knowing that he loves us, that he is for us. So we continue in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's another tattoo, bumper sticker, coffee mug verse. If I ever saw one. What does that mean? More than conquerors. Well, it's a part of the Greek word nikau. To prevail completely, as the Lutheran Study Bible points out. If we take it out of context, it's pretty easy to see this as... Yeah, rah, 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 I'm part of God's rugby team, and we're going to be undefeated. Oh, I'm part of God's wrestling team, and we're going to go to state. We're going to go to state. Something silly like that. But that's not what St. Paul is getting at. You are not a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. You prevail not because of you, but through him who loved you first. Our Lord Jesus has made sure 
that you and I have the promise of eternal life and not just eternal life in the sense of living forever. No, 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 no. There is a quality of eternal life here. Everybody has eternal consciousness. You are going to be conscious and alive for forever. But the question is, what's that going to look like for you? Is it going to be eternally consciously tormented in the fires of hell? Or are you going to be eternally consciously blessed and rejoicing to be among God's people? That's important. We understand that we do not conquer this world through the weapons of this world. We do not win the same way the world sees worldly winning through wars and guns and bombs and money, through manipulations, through elections, <laughs> through votes or cooking votes, however you end up doing it, we don't do that. Because we already trust in him who conquered for us, Christ the king of the entire universe. And we relate to him who already won, making us more than conquerors. We are the ones who live in a state of already having conquered. Because we're one with Christ in our baptism, we are one with the conqueror above all conquerors. And it is already, but not yet. Remember what the devil and his minions, what the world and their minions, what our own flesh is and what it does, all of that stuff is not a war that might end badly for God's people. No, it is a rebellion, an insurgency against Christ who won. And it does seem an awful lot like this is kind of like the devil's final push here in the year of our Lord 2022, that the past few hundred years have been very, very difficult for us. But take heart, because no matter what is thrown at the church, she is more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us because he already won. And therefore, no matter what comes at you, as we see in verse 38, that could be death, being killed for Christ's sake, or just being killed, nor life with all of its difficulties that we go through, nor quote-unquote angels, these messengers, could be false angels, could be demons themselves, could be the false prophets and false teachers of our day, the heretics and the evil teachers out there everywhere, nor things present, how bad it is, nor things to come, how bad it can be, nor powers. Well, what do we mean by powers? Cosmic unseen forces. I like the way they're putting that. Nor height, nor depth. How good things are. Can our prosperity break us? Oh, yes, it can. Prosperity can break you spiritually if you're not careful. Nor depth. Can your poverty, can your absolute destitute state bring you away from Christ? Well, Hmm. or anything else in all creation, anything that comes up, will it be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Absolutely not. It cannot do that. Our Lord is the one who preserves us, who loves us, and none of those things can by themselves take away your salvation. Remember, God is for you, and he is all-powerful. He gets what he wants. But that leads us to some more Protestant controversies and Protestant anger. <laughs> you know, props to 
the Calvinists and the Arminians and the Baptists, the Free Will Baptists or the Fundy Baptists or the four-point Calvinists or the five-point Calvinists or the six and seven-point Calvinists, that at least they're trying to figure these questions out. I mean, they're wrong, but they're trying, and i got to give them some credit for that. It seems to me that uh, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't like to talk about election. They prefer ecclesiology. And the same thing with the Eastern Orthodox Church, who, let's face it, guys, they just hate Calvin. So if you want to know the Orthodox Church's position on election and predestination, just read what Calvin wrote and believe the opposite. Boom, you're Eastern Orthodox when it comes to these issues. But for all the credit that I can give my fellow Protestants from different traditions, there is still a conflict between them and us Lutherans regarding a lot of the stuff we're trying to figure out reading the book of Romans. And when we read here in verse 38, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Reformed friends look at verses like that and see a proof text for once saved, always saved. The perseverance of the saints. Now, in contrast, we Lutherans believe in the preservation of the saints, that in our relationship with God, he actively preserves us in the faith through the means of grace, through absolution, through the sacrament, through the remembrance of our baptism, through the hearing of the word of God in law, gospel, and response. He is the one who preserves us, knowing full well that if we were just left to our own devices, we very well could screw up and apostatize and find ourselves damned. We do have a theology of mortal sin. The Reformed, however, look at this and say, no, that's not possible. If you are elect, you are elect. If God chose you to be saved, then that's, that's it. End of story, period. The elect cannot be damned. My question, though, is that what the text says? In fact, is that what the Bible says? The Bible is replete with so many examples of the apostles telling you, don't leave the faith. Stick with it. And here in this overarching passage, St. Paul is encouraging people who are going through a tough time for being Christians, knowing full well that it would be very, very easy for some to leave the faith and decide they were just going to end the persecution by saying they weren't Christian anymore or something, and just, just to make it stop. If eternal perseverance of the saints was true, why write that? Because after all, the saints are going to be the saints, no matter what you do. What's the point in telling them to stick with the program? What's the point of the entirety of the book of Hebrews, which is written to an audience that the author really, really, really didn't want them to leave the faith? What's the point of that? I remember hearing Calvinist professors of mine say that, listen, if somebody were to apostatize from the faith and remain in that state until they died... They were never one of the elect to begin with. So then what's the point of telling people to stick with the faith? The elect are going to do that regardless of whether or not you tell them to. They will stick with Christ. It reminds me of discussions with antinomians, you know, the willy-nilly party that St. Paul has to argue against over and over and over again. 
in the sixth chapter of Romans going on to the seventh. If God doesn't care what you do and you can just do whatever you want and sin willy-nilly, then why does he tell you to do stuff? They might say, oh, well, that's in the Old Covenant. That's where all those laws and commandments are. But then why do the apostles tell you to do stuff? If antinomianism is true, then they wouldn't do that because you can just do stuff willy-nilly. There's zero point to it. And it's kind of the same argument regarding preservation of the saints versus perseverance of the saints. You got to ask if St. Paul encourages you in the middle of a hard time. And if the book of Hebrews tells you to stick with the faith and not leave the faith, in Hebrews in particular, it's talking about a congregation that was tempted to go back to religious Judaism instead of staying with Jesus. If you are told to stay with Jesus, that doesn't make sense if you cannot leave him as one of the elect. Well, maybe some people would say that's just a warning to people to encourage them in devotion, but that's kind of making up a just-so story in order to walk around that issue and maintain the theology that you wanted in the first place. Now, I get it on a psychological level. Apostasy is terrifying. When we think about it, that we who believe in Jesus, who rejoice in the blood of Christ shed for us and the eternal life promised, the thought that you could somehow give that up to go be one of these pathetic burnouts out there who left the faith and destroyed themselves on account of it, always rationalizing their decision like, oh, I'm so much better now, (laughs) sniffing my farts, I'm great. In the middle of that, there is a real legitimate fear because you know exactly what happens. You know that that person, if they die in their sin, if they die in their refusal to embrace Jesus, after having done so previously, that there really isn't any hope for them. So people will argue in circles. They will go at 90 miles an hour in a 25 zone, overclocking their brains to defend perseverance of the saints. When instead, yes, that risk is there, yeah, there, there is apostasy that's a thing, but that's not going to happen if I truly trust in Jesus Christ, my Savior. I'm going to stick with him because that's what the apostles tell me to do. I do not want to sinfully abandon my God and leave. All those things that St. Paul mentions, they cannot separate you from God, from his love. He holds you in his hand. Is it possible that you could find yourself going down some dark road where you decide to jump out of his hand and into the fire, so to speak. Yeah, that's why we need to treasure our baptism and always return to Christ, living every day in the understanding that we are sinners saved by grace. And whether or not it makes sense logically for a group elected by God unto salvation, for any individual among them to then defy God's will... That's going to befuddle us, sure, but that's what the apostles are more or less getting at. Stay with Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. No matter what life is throwing at you, it will not separate you from the love of God. Stick with him. Stay with him. He loves you. He cares for you. And let the Holy Spirit comfort you in the midst of that with these promises. Does that sound logical? 
If I define something in a way that makes it illogical, sure. If I refuse to accept that there are mysteries, sure. And if I define election as election unto salvation, absolutely, that is going to be something I can't square that circle. So I either have to accept that mental tension, or I have to say that maybe my prior definitions and how I'm exegeting scripture is wrong. But I don't want any of you being afraid of apostasy. If you love Jesus, stick with them. He loves you. He will bring you to the sacrament. He will bring you to the remembrance of your baptism. He will preserve you and strengthen you in the faith. Let him do that. Let him take care of that. And let us love him for everything he has done for us. We don't need to be afraid of that. Like, I'm going to drop my wallet one day because I jumped a little too high. And whoops, I left the faith and now I'm damned. It doesn't really work that way. Let's stay with Jesus, rejoicing that he will take care of that. We trust in and worship a loving God who will preserve us. Let us ask him to keep us with him. But more issues and controversies among us Protestants to follow next week as we start talking about supersession. <laughs> That's going to be a fun one. That's going to be a real fun one. Amen and amen.